Today's episode of Into the Van is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you can always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast Into the Van in How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. Rogue Radio, where rogues come to hang. With Alex Tempest and Bob Lothian bringing you the best in classic and modern country music. Hey guys, welcome to Into the Van. Today's episode is brought to you by Rogue Radio, the brand new show from Rogue Country. It plays all the best of classic and modern artists. So you have Buck Owens, George Jones, Waylon Jennings, Hank Williams, right next to amazing modern artists like Sarah Vista, Amelia Quinn, Kings and Queens, Rob Henry. You know, this is a truly all-encompassing show that just shows how great this style of music is. And when people say there's no good music anymore, you can point them to this show, which is now available on Mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash rogue country. And as always, this episode is, of course, brought to you by The Next Life. That is my debut album, which is out now. It's nine tracks of alt-country joy. I'm super proud of this album and everything it's achieved so far. And I just want to get as many ears as possible to it. I'm going to drop a quick clip for you now. one of the tracks off the next life that i really hope you enjoy it's on vinyl it's on cd it's digital it's on all streaming platforms and all you need to do is go to mike333west.com and you'll be able to find it there today's episode of into the van is someone i really think you're gonna love for me this was a phenomenal conversation and i was so happy that he agreed to say yes this is of course the incredible beans on toast and I've been a fan of this guy since I saw him opening for Floggin' Molly way back when. And his career is such an interesting and inspiring, you know, it takes all these twists and turns that I think people really need to hear. And if you're an aspiring musician who just needs to realize you need to grind out this game, there's no one better than Beans to tell you that. We have a great talk about songwriting, keeping things, you know, that you have to talk about. Like, there's a lot of issues where people say, shut up and sing. And you can't talk about political issues. And I always think of Beans on Toast when I think about that argument. He influenced me for my songs like Nuke Song. He's influenced my point of view when I've said things on stage that I know people might not necessarily agree with. And he's just an all-around great independent musician to learn from. And, you know, he's really such a nice down-to-earth bloke as well that I can't believe he actually agreed to do this. 
So I'm absolutely amazed that I got to sit down with Beans for, you know, an hour and talk about songwriting and stuff. And if you're a fan of this episode, I don't know if you're here for the first time because of Beans on Toast, and if you are, welcome. But we have so many great guests in previous episodes, so please feel free to do a deep dive on those episodes as well. This is an absolutely phenomenal conversation. I don't want to keep you too much, so let's get down to it, guys. This is episode 14 of Into the Van with Mike West and Beans on Toast. Welcome to Into the Van with me, Mike West. Cool, so we're rolling. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we're just talking about gems on VHS. Is there anyone you're listening to at the moment or anyone who's jumped out on you on your travels that you've been listening to? Um, well, there's a new Bright Eyes album out last week, so I've been going through that, big Bright Eyes fan. But, um, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of music during you know this, this year more, more yeah. than ever. But a lot of country stuff. A chat called Gabe Lee mm. um, is really good. Tyler Childers. Um, and Casper Allen, who's oh. my favourite from the uh, from the kind of gems on VHS lot, his uh, sort of long-awaited album <laughs> uh, came out. I'd only really heard his stuff off that YouTube channel. You know, he had nothing online at all. Mm. His album week before last. So yeah, yeah. It's a really weird. I don't know if it's a trend or it's just by what happens, but it seems to be all these people who have been on gems and that Western AF channel, they seem to only really have that one or two videos out. Then you try and find them on Facebook and it's like 300 likes or something. And you're like, how the fuck have these people not been either not just discovered yet, but how do they not have that presence yet? But it shows just how underground these singer-songwriters are at the moment. Yeah, maybe they've spent their time working on their songs rather than their social media activity. Certainly yeah. sounds like it. Yeah, definitely. But um, what I wanted to talk to you was before, obviously when you agreed to do this, I got dead excited. So I went back and listened to your chat with Scroobius Pip on the distraction pieces, which was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, you said you were brought up on some of that older country stuff. What type of things were you listening to when you were younger, Lee? On the country aspect. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a sort of, my sort of musical youth was a mixture between my mum, who was like, the kind of the Beatle maniac, you know, and she pretty much listened to nothing but Beatles or Beatles affiliated stuff. And my dad, who was, yeah, you know, a big country fan basically. And it was, it was the eighties. So, you know, our favorite act was Randy Travis. Mm. Probably. So it was like proper cheesy. We didn't, we wasn't really Garth Brook fans in our house, but it was sort of, of that mm. ilk, you know, eighties, like big snare drums, stuff like that. But then at the same time, there was, you know, John Prine, Guy Clark, and, you know, the kind of, the, mm. the, the songwriting greats of country. But probably our sort of like, the modern country of the 80s, you know, uh, probably a time that has sort of been forgotten for a reason, I would imagine. Even Johnny Cash went shit in the 80s. <laughs> that <laughs> is, it. yeah. It is a really weird, like, period of time because it just seems that, like, even only really seems like glam metal and like Bon Jovi kind of survived the eighties. Well, and it just, all the eighties bands, all the kind Mm. of new romantics and stuff that was, that was, I think it was like, there was a lot of new technology on hand and 
if you was kind of doing country music, you just applied the technology to that, thinking that, well, this is exciting, you know, because no one had really heard it before. So it didn't, stuff like that didn't date well, but um, didn't age well, sorry. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, there was plenty of great music that, that, that came out of the 80s at, at the same time. It seems the 80s for me, just because obviously I was born in the 90s, so I have no idea what I'm talking about, really. But it seems to I mean, me I that... I was born in 1980, <laughs> so me up until I was 10 years old. <laughs> but it seems that a lot of the great 80s bands were the ones who kind of were formed and broke in that decade. And everyone before then had a, like an adjustment period, like you were saying, it was like the technology. And it was really... That, I think, was the biggest period of change, I think, for music up until that point. I guess because there was so many kind of like recording breakthroughs about what equipment was was available. Basically. Mm. But who knows? Yeah. Well, what I wanted to, like with that kind of upbringing on country and, you know, with the Beatles, and I just saw a thing today, and I don't know if you'll agree with it, if the Beatles are so great, how come they aren't on the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 soundtrack? <laughs> I'm sure they are. <laughs> Apparently the internet says they're not, but but with that <laughs> but with that kind of background, has that been an influence on your writing and things? I know it's very folk and story. I mean, I'm really I don't really say it in public, but I'd like to think of myself as a country songwriter. You know, I'm not often called folk, but it, it took me, you know, a bit of sort of looking back and soul searching to realise that you know I was. Writing when I started writing the songs that are now performed as being on Beans on Toast, it was like their songs with country songs. I mean, there's a lot of songs about drinking and you know, getting fucked up. There's and there's also with country songs, you know what the songs are about. Mm. It's not like um, sort of beautiful poetry painting a picture of you know, of, or imagery or any of like that. It's like this is a song about this one particular thing. It's whether it be about my wife leaving me or me climbing a mountain or this other bit. It's like they're the song, they're very sort of like to the point, mm. which is exactly what I do with my songwriting. And it wasn't something I was didn't think about that or set out to do it, but it was, you know, in hindsight, comparing my songs to, you know, to anyone. It was like, well, it makes, you know, I, I basically do do that, you know, mm. my, my songs are about specific things that are very clear what the specifics are, mm. rather than, like I said, you know, sort of like hinting at an idea or, or sort of like trying to portray my emotions with poetic language. Mm. I think, especially listening to your kind of stuff, there is that, not that there's no like pretense or anything, but it's very to the point and that's what country and that kind of folk stuff is. But what I think and this isn't me just like complimenting you and you come on here for an hour and I just tell you all the things that I'm a fan of. All right. (laughs) But what I think you do better than almost anyone out there at the moment is the same thing that made the original kind of folk and country movement back in the day so great, like with Woody Guthrie, where you talk about the things that are affecting you from your perspective at that time. So it can be dated or kind of put, so like the song 2016, that can kind of have a focal point and a date of that year, but it's still applicable and you can still listen back to it in the same way that you can listen to what Woody Guthrie was singing about looking around at his time. And I think that may be an element that's kind of missing from modern day country and folk. Yeah. I mean, singing about social commentary, which is something I've always done. It does, it does give songs a shelf life. 
Um, certainly, I mean, maybe not. I, I'm glad that you say that you can still listen back to 2016. I can't really play it live anymore. You know, I sort of, when I wrote it in June, you know, I only had six months of a, of a live life, really. Because it was, you know, I wrote it in June and it was like, come January, I knew I'm not going to, it just feels like looking backwards. And that's, I think that goes, and a lot of, you know, writing about the pandemic, you know, like it's, it, if the world, uh, the more I've written about social commentary and the longer I've been doing this, the harder it's been to keep up. You know, I've mm. always released a lot of music, written constantly and released a lot of music. And even last year, writing about Brexit, you know, like, and writing a song in July or August that was out of date and, you know, actually wrong by December when it came out because things had changed so much. Hmm. That that sort of says a lot about how the world is kind of, was speeding up. Yeah. And again, try, writing about the pandemic, you know, I was like, I was writing about something and getting it out within a matter of two weeks. And sometimes it felt out of date, you know, because the world's moving that fast. And I think, so that's, I think if you're gonna write about current events, you need to understand that this song will have a shelf life. Mm. And, and that goes hand in hand with why I release so much music, basically. And I don't necessarily think that, may, that makes the songs kind of throw away. It's just, um, but, but, to, but, you know, to a certain extent, some of mine are, you know, like there's a whole bunch in my back catalogue that, I'll never play again. I don't even know, you know, I wouldn't remember the words or the chords to, you know, like the, the just sort of like mattered for that time yeah. then. But then I'll, I'll move on quite quickly without, you know, I love my songs, but I'm certainly not fucking precious about them. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that's a really interesting thing about you because I know that especially with like the bigger bands like Metallica and stuff, there can be this almost like, sterile feel to them because you know they're going to be playing x amount of songs you know they're going to be playing you know enter sandman at the end you know when certain songs are going to come up in the set but with you are you more conscious of when you write a set list and do a show it's like well i've written this song and it's got like two weeks so i need to play this as many shows before then as possible um i mean i, I don't put that much thought in and don't really use set lists. <laughs> i mean but i'll always you know i'll always play md amazing every gig you know because there's some people that just want to hear that song mm. and that's you know i'm completely cool with that so there's you know two or three songs of that first record which is you know over 10 years old that i will generally play or certainly if someone shouts them out i'll play it um but at the same time whatever song i've just finished will always get an air in i mean i struggle to this year's been a bit different because there's been so few gigs but uh I struggle to not play my songs before they're finished. <laughs> like I'm just about to finish a song and I've got a gig. I'll always, I'll say to myself, don't play the fucking song. You know, just don't do it. Just go, just wait till you've finished it. And then you gig it. And then like halfway through the gig, I'm like, all right, who wants to hear a new song? It's not actually done, but I'll just, and, and sometimes that helps me kind of find out where the song's supposed to end or whatnot. But, um, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it, it almost feels kind of redundant comparing what I do to what Metallica do. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's obviously, we're on completely, you know, different ends of, of the kind of spectrum of what people want. But yeah, you know, I, I'll always, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely play what people want to hear. 
rather than just being like, these are the new five. I wouldn't mm. open with three or four songs that I've just written. Mm. But I, I, but I, I generally I like opening with a brand new tune. Mm. I've got no qualms, no qualms with that. And so I think that comes from if I'm working on a song or I've just finished a song, that's at the forefront of my head. And since I step on stage, it's just like, I kind of need to, I'll never remember it if I play it now halfway through the gig. So it's like, get out there, get that out, because it's still in this sort of fragile memory place. Get that out and then just sort of relax into the rest mm. of the gig. Yeah. I've been, I've been kicking around this thought and I don't know, I think you're probably one of the best people to talk to about is with, you know, what I was just saying about kind of like designated set list and things, obviously you don't use one. I've been thinking of, do you know, like the stand-up comedy model, especially George Carlin, where he'd, you know, perform on tour doing this material. And then once he recorded it and it was actually like documented, he'd been that entire hour of material and then had to write something new. I was wondering wow. if a musician taking that approach would help creatively more and actually create a more interesting live show and more interesting songs if they then after recording an album stopped performing that those songs to a point uh i don't think so i mean i love the uh um i, I love george carlin you know what, what and that's a great idea it's kind of uh you know it it's incredibly creative things to do. but i think the reality of what people go to a gig for is mm. they want you know, to hear the songs that they love, ideally as close to the recording as possible, really, mm. because that song means something to them yeah. in life and they want to feel their emotions, which so kind of, it, it feels like you, you're kind of robbing people mm. of, of experience a little bit, thing like that. I mean, with the, um, the, the kind of comedian thing, I remember like I, I can be repetitive, you know, on tours, because I, you know, I talk a lot in between my songs and on tours, I can basically be telling the same gags. And there's something about it which um, feels a little rude. Like if you're, you know, if, if, if you're telling the same joke, night after night in between songs or introducing the song in the same manner, there was a part of me that was like, am I, because it, it feels spontaneous, but you know, like ultimately it's kind of scripted mm. and it doesn't feel or look it. And I was like, in my head, sort of wrestling with that thought, am I, you know, rot, sort of mistreating the audience in any way? And I was with a good friend of mine who's, uh, who actually is called Mike West, uh, <laughs> who's an American guy uh, from a band called Truck Stop Honeymoon. Who, um, and he, he's a big storyteller on stage as well. And we toured together and he, you know, again, he sort of runs through his kind of script. And he sort of compared that to uh, comedians. Mm. He was like, the thing is about musicians, people do want to hear the songs that they know and they want to hear them in a way that they, you know, that they is familiar to them. Uh, and, you know, and telling the, some jokes in between is nothing. In comparison to, mm. uh, you know, a stand-up comedian that ultimately doesn't, you know, no one wants to hear the same joke twice. Mm. Like people do want to hear that fresh. And they're ultimately touring, doing the same jokes every night, bang, 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 and making it feel spontaneous. And once he's, he sort of mentioned that, I was like, you know, he's right. You know, there is, and it is still, I mean, it's never scripted, my gigs, but there's just, you know, like the, well, you know, the same old story comes out. But once I kind of got my head around that bit, I felt a little bit more at ease. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. I've been, I've been kicking that idea around. I don't think I'd ever have the balls to do it because 
I enjoy playing the songs I play and the ones I've written. And I like each song. I don't like with, like if you have the same thing, if it's in a different venue or it can just be one thing that changes it and it even just changes the meaning for you as you play it. And I like discovering that type of like perspective on a song that I've been so familiar with to still get taken by surprise when I'm playing it. Fuck yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think they, um, you know, songs have, have their own lives and, uh, the longer that you play them, the, yeah, the more you find out about them. I mean, I never really listen unless I really can't remember a song. I never listen back to how they were recorded and the odd time that, you know, someone else puts it on or whatever. I'm always, surprised by the fact that it's too slow or the words are wrong on the record or whatever you know because it, it's now sort of adapted and lived on and you know and exists in, an, in a different way mm. and with the strength of the song if you find it you know new meanings in your own songs in years after you've written them then you know hats off to you yeah i think there's a few songs that are like personal and i know Sometimes it's like, I don't, so even if I'm in, not in a bad mood, but I'm in a different frame of mind when I'm playing them, it just, I either deliver it differently or it's just, it registers my performance differently. It's just something I enjoy because as much as it's like a live experience for the crowd, it's a live experience for me as well, because it's, I'm still playing and it's still, you know, if I flub a note or something, it's like, it's something new for me to engage with and interact. That's what I really love about playing live performances and going to see them yeah well i did a, a seated tour for my book that came out a couple of years ago and um i you know i played the odd seated show around over, over the years but this was specifically in seated venues theaters and stuff like that and it was like unbelievable how effectively i was doing the same old shit that i always do but i was sat down and everyone else was sat down and it's incredible how different it felt mm. like it was uh it, it it just felt like a you know a completely different gig than you know my gigs are always quite rowdy i've got no qualms with people chatting and kind of you know like they're being you know the room's being quite sort of vibrant and then sat everybody down on some people's i found it i mean i loved it but i felt it was really self-indulgent like <laughs> too much like and I worried that everybody needed the toilet all the time. You know, as I, <laughs> I would in that, in that scenario, like nervous to stand up and go for a piss. So I'd actually do, during the seated gig, that worried me so much, I did scheduled piss break halfway through every night where I went for a piss and everybody, just because I was just worried about the tension in the room. But it was so, uh, you know, and again, the songs, which were the same songs, it wasn't like I was playing them slower or more gentler or anything like that. I was just sat down. And they took on a whole new life. Mm. But I don't know whether that's the power of the song or the power of, you know, sort of like the room and mentality of people between mm. standing up and sitting down. Mm. That's, it's such an interesting thing. I know it is with people even sitting up or standing down, it can completely change the like vibrance of the room and stuff. But with your songs, like, is, do you have a process, especially with, the like commentary songs and the ones that are quite current. Do you have a process with that? Because I assume it has to have a quick turnaround time. So, what is like a process for a recent song like? For writing, mm. 
I mean, I've sort of, my writing has always been the same. As, uh, as long as I'm in a room where I feel like no one can hear me. Um, and so privacy, I guess. Mm. Just privacy and weed, basically. Smoke a couple <laughs> of cigarettes and just sit. I feel like I've, I'm never really, I'll never sit at home and play my old songs mm. or rehearse. Or, and I can't really, I don't really know how to play other people's songs on guitar, like maybe a few John Prine songs, but I wouldn't really sit around and do that. So when I am, when I get a chance to play guitar, you know, I, I, I generally play something new and write something and I almost find that um, I don't do it. And again, this is talking like pre lockdown because things, you know, it's, it's changed so much, but normally I'd, I sort of wouldn't have that privacy just because I'm so busy doing something else and sort of build up and I'd almost be like fully charged, mm. like not being able to sit down and write uh, and just, you know, like thinking loads of things. Blah, blah, and then I'll just like have one night and I'll sort of write the bare bones of like two or three songs. And, uh, and then once, once, you know, like there's basically, it's a two, two process thing where I was like, I write the most of it. And then I just, it just goes around and round in my head for the next couple of days where it gets ironed out and then, you know, just record it onto my phone or whatever. And then it's done, you know, <laughs> and uh, I find well, my favorite songs are right about pen and paper. Mm. Well, I find you can just, you know, like I memorize songs as I write them. So, you know, the good ones that, you know, that just roll off the tongue and then I'll just just go round and round and round. Like I said, come back, go and it'll be done. Um, I never, like, it's full moon tonight, isn't it? Like, I always, like, I, I like writing around, like, lunar cycles as yeah. well. Like, uh, I, I felt it sort of, um, it, um, it sort of caught me out a few times. Like, I'd, uh, I'd sort of be, like, just finishing. I'd, I'd been having a great night, like, again, like, sort of deep in the middle of this song and then I'll go outside and it'd be like, fuck, there's a full moon. Like, and, it, like, and it caught me a few times that I was, sort of, and I've, you know, I've always had a, a bit of a thing for the moon and shit like that, but like, it, because of that, I sort of started paying more attention to it and as usual with them things, the more you sort of tune into it. So, and again, you know, like now that I've just, you know, for this year I've had so much time at home you know, I was sitting where it's like full moon tomorrow and purposely, you know, like get the guitar out and sort of, sort of go then. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, if there is a process is that, but I think at the same time, I'm always writing. Mm. So that's, that is the process. really. And with stuff like 2016, was there an initial line or anything, if you can remember, that was the first kind of building block for that song or something that kicked I think it off? The, I think the kind of songs come as, because going back to the kind of country thing where it's like the songs being definitely about something. I think the song is almost written the minute that I have the idea. Mm. It's like, that'll be it. And, uh, you know, out on the piss, I'm a nightmare because someone says, well, someone makes a comment about something and I'm like, oh, that'll be a song. You know, you can write a song about that. But I, and I sort of see songs everywhere. Like in, in what people say and things that happen, it's like, oh, I could do a song about that. Blah, blah. So it's like constantly like that. And, the, and some of them stick and some of them don't. I sometimes wake up in the morning knowing that I had a good idea. You know, there was something <laughs> I saw about. I can't remember the life of me what it was. Uh, but um, I think once they, it's like what comes is, is the concept and actually, and turning the concept into, you know, a free chord ditty. Uh, is 
Um, I, mean, I don't want to say easy, but yeah, you know, I find it quite easy. I, I, in fact, it's more than easy, really hugely enjoyable is what I'd say. Mm. You know, I, like, I really, really in, enjoy the process. I see it as a kind of magic as well. It's just like creating something out of nothing. Mm. And, and that, that can effectively be so powerful, you know, for me and potentially for, you know, for other people as well. Um, but, you know, the, the amount of kind of, you know, distance that I've traveled off of, off of my songs, mm. which is, you know, that, that, I've, that have come out of absolute thin air, you know, mm. never seems to amaze me. Yeah, I kind of believe, like, I'm not Buddhist, but I enjoy their text. And there's a guy called Thich Nhat Hanh who wrote him No Death, No Fear. And it's a really good book that helped me like kind of wrap my head around like existential crisis. I had like a massive fear of death and stuff, but this is going to go lighter. And it's, um, I was having these like thoughts. So I was reading this book and it talks about how something can't come from nothing and nothing can't come from something. And I kind of thought with songwriting, that's the kind of same thing. And I think talking to yourself and talking to other songwriters, it's like, it's kind of pulled out of thin air, but it's everything. And it's like, even if it's like a lunar cycle, everything kind of has to line up for this song to manifest itself from, you know, this snippet of a conversation you had to remembering that a chord might fit somewhere and it all yeah. kind of funnels down. And then you have this like, just pick like moment of clarity where this song forms. And I think, Again, it's such an enjoyable and indescribable feeling. I think if you haven't written songs and I've been speaking to a lot of my friends who are musicians and they in lockdown have been putting pressure on themselves to write and stuff. And I'm like, if, are you having fun though? And if they say no, I'm like, then don't play your guitar. Don't write a song. You have to be enjoying what you're doing to get. Yeah, I think there's, there's an art into being able to open the door to the art, basically. Mm. And it goes across the board in, in you know, getting in there you know as much as because i you know i've got no problem with you know working writing a song to a deadline or anything like that but it's it's just it's mainly because i've been doing it for so long i don't feel that oh nothing's gonna come sort of thing you know but i think it is it the mindset of any i think of any creative outlet is hugely important you know mm. because you need to I don't know, it's a mixture of, of kind of, yeah, feeling sort of confident but non, but not pressured, mm. basically, and, you know, and honest. And, well, I mean, you know, I think the world could, could all do with a bit, feeling a bit less pressured and a bit more mm. confident. But, um, yeah, I've, you know, I've always, I've always just really loved it. I think that, and there's, you know, the, there's a kind of joy that comes with, you know, knowing that you've written a song that you really like. Mm. as well that, that will you know keep me you know keep me floating around for days you know like the song just in my head and just you know knowing that i got another another one <laughs> yeah and that's probably why when you play it live it's like you need to get out straight away to kind of be like look what look what i've got and try and yeah. like because you are excited about it and you want to show people exactly that but um i first met you at a Flog and Molly gig. I can't even remember the year of it now. We, it was in the Manchester Academy too. So I think mm -hmm. it may have been 2013 or so. Yeah. <laughs> but when, yeah. when did you start as a solo act or as you know, Beans on Toast? 
my first album came out in 2009 and I reckon I was playing for like maybe two or three years before that. Yeah. Um, I was, I'd always written songs. I played in a, um, like a grunge band as a mm. kid, six. And uh, we moved to London from Essex when I was 19. And then the band sort of fell apart and I, from the kind of, from the moving down, I'd sort of learned that how to promote a band aspect and mm. basically got sub promotion. So um, I started running like indie clubs and putting on parties in pubs and stuff like that with the drummer from the band and stopped um, releasing music or performing live as such, but was always writing. And then uh, them songs that I wrote sort of turned into things. And toes. I was at the time I was um, living and kind of running as a, as a very loose word, uh, a pub on Holloway Road called Nambuka. Mm. And, I kind of started playing there more like when a band didn't show up or I'd like, I'd be the compare and stuff like that. And just like, or just to get the night going, I'd get my guitar out mm. and, um, and just, it sort of started from there and, and it never really, and then also at the same time, I was going to a lot of festivals at the time and kind of, you know, just breaking or blagging it in. Um, and, started getting at the same time as that I started doing playing sort of like open mic type stages at some of the bigger festivals mm. and then just uh, the two things sort of both happened and um, just one gig led to another basically I'd play one gig at a festival and get offered you know another gig at a different festival and and I just said yes to everything and then I got offered you know I was just started I, I used to play in London like maybe three or four nights a week really uh, Old Queen's Head or Nambuka or fucking hell, other venues that names are escaping me now. I just had like the Abbey Tavern in Kentish Town. Just had loads of regular gigs with mates, and then at weekends, I just I started getting more and more sort of festival shows coming. And it was just I never really pushed it on anybody. I was at the time I was quite plugged into a wider circle. I was like managing a quite a big indie band and running a big like club night. So it was all like. It was all just a party, basically. And I was just, like, just just playing guitar and just jumping up when it was appropriate. And because I was so plugged into, you know, this kind of London live music scene, just got a lot of bookings. And it, I, know, I never asked for a gig, I don't think, for the first really? years. Yeah, I didn't ask anybody, you know, just sort of like, just took, just said yes to everything that was offered. And then, uh, and then I did the Frank Turner tour. So Frank was, Frank Turner used to play it. Nambuka a lot, we were good pals, and he, you know, he went off and came back. This kind of, you know, like, things started exploding, and he took me on his first sort of headline tour, and then his manager and record label at the time, Extra Mile Recordings, Charlie basically said, look, would you want to put an album out because you're going on tour, and, you know, we'll, it's worth it just for that. At the time, I was just never really, I hadn't recorded any music, and it was just, it wasn't really about that. And uh, so I counted and I had 49 songs. So I wrote another song and then just recorded all 50 of them and put out my first album. But specifically for that tour, really, that was the idea. It was like, it was to fund the tour, supporting Frank. And uh, yeah, and then it just, you know, a year later, it was like, fuck it, let's do another record, you know. And then now it's 12 years later. 
That's such an interesting path because I know, like, obviously I'm up Liverpool way. So that London scene, was that still present? Obviously lockdowns kind of cancelled that, but has that London scene always been, like, throughout it? Like, well, I've, always... I've said nothing to do with it anymore, but in my, you know, with, uh, I'm four, nearly 40 years old now, you know, this <laughs> is, uh, um, this, uh, you know, I hope so. And I'm sure it is, but I can't really talk for mm. for the youth of today. But certainly back then, yeah, man. I mean, you know, Nambuka was fucking, it was, you know, it was incredible musicians, you know, like that went on to be superstars. Mm. You know, but I, the, seeing them in the pub, it was, you know, be it, you know, Florence and Machine, for example, you know, I see her standing, singing solo, banging her foot on the stage and just singing a cappella. And I was just watching, I was like, surely she deserves to be a fucking superstar, you know, listen to her, look at her, like everything about it's just, that you know, and, and at the time, never, it was just like, seeing it happen makes me feel fucking amazing, you know, because yeah. it's like, it's, you know, like, you can't be that good just in a, you know, in a small pub, mm. banging your foot on stage, you know, and just, and you know, it was everyone's just mates and it was just doing it, but I was like, this is good, you know, like, and a lot of the bands from around that time, you know, like, went on to be worldwide superstars, and it felt, you know, and it, because, you know, and you can kind of see, it's easy to say it now in hindsight, mm. you know, there was a lot of bands that I thought were amazing that perhaps didn't, but, you know, like, it was, you know, you know, it was a wonderful thing to be part of in your 20s, you know, fucking off your head, running club nights and watching incredible musicians and kind of like, and seeing it all, all go well. But it was definitely like being so plugged into that, not as a musician, but just as a mate, as mm. you know, fucking helped me. That's really been the kind of key to me being able to do what I do. You know, even like Ben Lovett from Mumford & Sons recording my last album in the church studios, for nothing you know one of the best studios in london because he's a mate and he recorded the first album and it was like now he's in a massive band he's like fuck it sneak in just come in <laughs> on the band recording that, that mumford were doing their album and he was like just come in on the weekend and we'll just make an album it was like and that's because of you know hookups from from back in the day so it's still very that kind of the scene that was still lit is very much alive in in what i do today but i can't speak for you know yeah. what the 20 year olds are doing in North London. <laughs> That's such an interesting like perspective and things. And obviously I think time will afford you to look back on that and, you know, make more distinctions to be like, Oh, that was when this kind of music and this kind of scene and all these people were being creative and being noticed for it. And that's, I think something that's kind of not forgotten about, but kind of with all the, grassroots venues battles especially at the moment that happened it's a lot that kind of gets missed out or ignored for where these bands come from because obviously with x-factor voice or whatever there's that avenue which is highlighted the most but you know florence and machine was in pubs like way back when and those pubs and those venues still need to be there for the next generation to come up through yeah, of of course, you know, and I don't think, you know, like that TV singing contest shit, anybody really, you know, it doesn't really, no one gives a shit about that anymore, do they? Right. <laughs> I, it, it's, it's got, people, I mean, it obviously serves a purpose, but people know now that it doesn't really have any integrity. 
I think um, it's starting to seep through and it's the cracks are starting to show a bit more as you kind of don't hear from anyone after the kind of win or you don't even really hear like them winning. Yeah, I just, I never really pay any, any, I, I see stuff like that, like fucking, you know, junk food and, and mm. advert. The less, less I know about it, the better I feel, basically. Mm. So try and stay, stay well away. But um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think as far as sort of like, small venues it's like you know like bands exploding can can do so such amazing things for their their either their towns or cities you know or and or their their venues you know that they've that they've come up through which is um you know a, just a reason to celebrate art mm. the the fact that I'm trying to think of a good example, you know, better than obviously Sheffield's had a bunch of bands, but you know, the, well, so Sheffield, for example, be it Pulp or the Arctic Monkeys or whatnot, you know, over the years from producing so much music has, um, has, has given that city so much life and so much reason to create more music. And that's why the venues there are really good. And it's also why the city stands above a lot of the cities of a similar size around it, you know, because it has more culture, more venues, more successful. It's like, and that's because, you know, I don't know, it's the chicken and eggs, isn't it? Did the mm. band come before the, uh, you know, before the excited city or the, or the other way around? Mm. But, it, uh, you know, let's hope that the venues can fucking survive or, because, you know, if you pull the plug on it all, saying that, I'm so glad we're not talking about the pandemic, I must say, I've done. I feel like I've uh, talked enough about that. It's nice to just sort of like step outside of it. For a yeah, I've but, kind of been kind of like conscious about like this podcast started in March, and I recorded the first episode with Sean James um, on his last gig before like everything got pulled because of COVID, and we talked about it briefly on that, and I've had a bit of a chat, but I try and keep the covid and pandemic talk to before i hit record because i don't want this to become like a well, that puts a time, yeah that puts a time limit on it as well yeah, i don't it? want it to be like the samuel peeps fucking diary of like the plague of london i don't want it to be like a catalog yeah. of the pandemic Plus, if anything, and if anything it needs at the moment probably less opinions on it isn't it <laughs> so we'll, we'll stick to what we know a little bit more about maybe yeah but uh, yeah it has been a conscious effort to not make this a doom and gloom conversation about musicians during this pandemic because musicians are something to be celebrated and even now people are going to be finding ways to create and i think you know if the worst happens and venues do close and things no venues doesn't mean no musicians it just means those musicians will find somewhere yeah else no play. i mean music isn't going to stop being made or, or listened to is it fuck no. i mean it's just in, in, an absolutely insane fall and that's not you know like putting down all of the many people it takes to put on a show and whatnot. But, you know, it's still, of course it will mm. survive, you know, yeah. like in, in one way or another. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 Like I, I did a gig, I think it was late last year and I didn't even use a PA system and it felt like it was the closest I've ever felt to feeling like an old, like troubadour, like musician from way back when, because it was literally... I was leaning against the bar with my guitar and kind of wandering around the pub because he was like, you can go play in that corner over there, which was, there was like a stack of eight chairs 
it was next to the fireplace that had a fire guard on so it was like a foot of space i'm already right. six foot two with a guitar and another guitar in case and i was like do you mind if i just wander around and he went no and i was like fuck it then and with even just that one little experience i know that if a venue or something can't have music if i have to play on my street corner or my doorstep or someone else's doorstep music's still gonna happen yeah and i mean you know the i don't know anything i'm going to start talking about pandemic now which i just said we have not to <laughs> yeah it is, of, of course it will survive you know i'm not I'm, and I'm, I'm not one of them people that believes that you know it's like in a, you know in times of trouble you get good music it's like <laughs> fuck that. you know i'd much rather have you know, just only be able to write songs about you know being on the beach watching the sunset because the world is such a glorious place. Yeah, there's plenty of other things to, you know, to write about. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I've, I, it, it, it's a tough time. But I also think that a lot of um, people have realised how much they need it as well. Mm. And I think as and when it is safe to come out, uh, people will come out with a new first. Mm. I believe the same with nature as well. I think that something about locking people away is that they've sort of like realised how much they need, you know, nature, be it a park or a river mm. or you know, a coastline or whatever. But um, we've been denied a lot of our sort of like human instincts. And I think that when, you know, when we get, when we get them back, when it's safe to have them back, we'll, we'll take them with a new first. And, uh, and and hopefully that will be for the better, you know, maybe reclaim some of the places that, you know, some of the nature that's been locked away from us and maybe, you know, like make music more accessible. Yeah, hopefully. And I think, you know, that's, you have to, you have to think positively and you have to think optimistically. And that's what I like about your music. And that's one of your influences on me is to give like look at the world critically and speak like from your perspective but always end on either a positive or end on a call for action or end on something that's not just and it's shit and i think yeah. that's a really I mean, important listen to that song why would you go back to the song <laughs> unless it's like this is my you know like a heartbreak song and this is my personal tragedy and maybe you can tap into that but like it's if it, you know, if the if the story of the song is you fucked, you never, <laughs> you no one's really going to enjoy it, no matter how good the play is or however the good the chords might be. You know, like you, there's. I mean, that's also not how I feel, but I think that, um, yeah, if you can do it, if you you know, if you can pass anything off in a song, then it's got to be on a positive note. I'd say. Yeah, I remember I've stopped lot watching a lot of like TV and things. Like I remember everyone raves about Black Mirror, and I watched the first few seasons, and then it was ju- it was just getting too bleak, and I was like, it's so well it, done. Been in prophecy at some point as well, isn't it? I mean, I love Black Mirror, um, so maybe that sort of dis- takes back what I just said. But the thing is, I don't think I'd watch them twice. You know, That's- I think with a song, you'd want it. You want a song that you can go back to. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I was watching them and I was like, so they lose at the end or this happens and then the world just carries on turning, which is like probably a more realistic, at least in this time. But it's like, it's not what I want to have as the message for like art and things. And I was like, 
even just thinking about other TV shows and all the kind of heroes or main characters weren't likable or good characters. So I was like, I just need to do something that's more positive. And that's been a, something yeah, I've really been trying to focus on. Get on the rom-coms. I mean, there's yeah. not many Hollywood movies that don't end happy. Mm. They, uh, uh, but the few that, uh, what's it, Requiem for a Dream. Mm. Uh, that is a film that starts sad and just gets sadder and sadder. And fuck, man. I mean, you watch it and it's just like, it's horrible. Mm. You know, it's an incredible piece of, you know, film. But it's, you know, devastating to watch. And there's, I uh, watched the new... Uh, there's another film that does a similar thing. But, you know, there's a reason that films have that little mm. at the end to send you on your way. Because otherwise, you know, like, what's the fucking point of just making everybody feel more miserable than <laughs> it might be? Yeah. And I think it, as a musician, you don't want to end a gig like that because, you know, <laughs> you don't want them walking out the door miserable. Hard-earned money. I mean, I, sometimes, if anything, I feel, sometimes I feel guilty that, if people have come to watch us play and it's, you know, a lot of people look to music as a form of escape, you know, from the, the everyday or from the troubles of the, of, you know, of, of the world. And then I come to my gig and I get all fucking thrown back in their face. <laughs> I feel like, oh man, you know, like, shut up, man. Just think about something nice. Um, but the, you know, I suppose the sort of perfect gig, you, you come in and forget about everything. You know, and just sort of like, and just be fully entertained and leave on a massive high. And that's only going to do better for the world. You know, if you can bring a hundred or, you know, a thousand people into a room and, and them leave feeling better about themselves and the world, then fuck, that's a win. You know, mm. they can only go on and, you know, whether it lasts an hour or a lifetime, you know, it might sort of go on and that, that good feeling, that good world can be sort of, passed on mm. yeah definitely it's a definitely like a pay it forward thing but with that in mind and the type of songs you write about are you ever conscious or aware of you know there's always that divide between you know shut up and sing as a musician and keeping politics and worldviews out of it and obviously you have a lot of social commentary songs a lot of like crit not like critical songs and you have songs that kind of highlight issues are you ever reticent about putting those type of songs out or do you think that's from your perspective that's dude, yes what dude, fuck, like it's too late for that you know i think and people that listen to my music that's what they're expecting you know like no you know the more fucked up the world gets the more i've got to write about mm. unfortunately was um, that a hard one for core fan base and a perspective to have was that something difficult in the beginning or was it with that festival and, you know, that kind of attitude, was that kind of embraced early on? Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's what I've always done. So I think I certainly maybe when I started off, there was a lot more kind of like songs about drugs. Um, and, you know, and that was, you know, singing about getting hammered at a festival to a bunch of people hammered at a festival is, you know. <laughs> it's a slam dunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that works. Um but I mean, it's the only thing I know how to do, and 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 it and it's what I've always done. And, and of course, I know there's people out there. I, I've always known it's not for everyone, mm. as well. You know, um, but I think I don't know the people that like it. it, 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 it sort of I don't know, hang around, I guess. So, mm. um, 
I've never, again, I've never really seen it as some kind of like on a mission to build a fan base or, or anything like that. I've just, I don't, you know, don't take any of that into account when I'm writing. Mm. Uh, it's just, all. you need to get that message yeah, across and that. It's all I know how to do. So I just do it the only way I know, I know how. And I'd like to think it's got better the more I've done it as, you know, as, as it is with, with most things in, in life. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'd never sort of, you know, what's good. Like I said, it's, that's, that's what I do. It's not mm. like, oh, you can't talk about this or you can't talk about that. If anything, it's like, fucking, you know, talk about it quickly. Talk about it there. <laughs> no, that's the best way to be in with, you know, beans on toast being the moniker and stuff. Do you think as a solo act, and obviously you have band members come in with like, I think, does 10 Sheds play drums? with you uh, yeah. piano and he plays uh, on your band and you get musicians in has beans on toast been helpful as a name for you know playing and as a solo artist and stuff because i kind of think you know there's artists like the white buffalo and amigo the devil and beans on toast that have this name that doesn't necessarily imply a solo act so do you think that helped at all like early on or yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the name's probably helped and hindered in equal measure. You know, I've had to explain it a lot more than I ever dreamed I would when I come <laughs> up with it. I think initially I was probably the name for a band, and then I just started doing it solo before I sorted that out. Um, and, you know, it can, sometimes it's me, sometimes it, it's a band, sometimes it's a duo. Uh, but I, I've sort of, with Adam, who, does, who books my shows, you know, like, that's no one else gets to decide that if you know mm. what I mean you put beans on toast and I can come and do whatever the fuck I want is the is the general kind of <laughs> just because it changes mm. you know to um without me knowing you know so, well not without me knowing but you know I can't necessarily prepare for a gig by saying oh we're gonna I'd never put full band in brackets mm. or a duo show in brackets or whatever that. It's just it, wherever it is, it's billed as being some toast, and then you know, like you'll you'll get whatever's the plan of the, that day. Mm. So That's- I guess it's for that, you know. Yeah. Um, but again, yeah, never thought about that. No, but I think that's something that's really interesting about you is as an independent musician. You know, when I asked you to be on this podcast, I dropped you an email, and you responded. Is there a you know, is there a bigger team or is it just Adam who books your shows? You, and yeah, it's just me. It's, it's me and what me and Adam basically. He, he so he does all my bookings, which is you know the main kind of the work that needs to be done basically. And the, I'm awful as my I did get back to you, but I'm pretty bad at getting <laughs> back to people in all fairness. Uh, so he he locks all that down, and then he also goes above and beyond the you know. Uh, his his role as a booking agent we we will schedule album plans together and you know we'll, we'll sort of bounce off each other for for the works but now i, I worked with extra mile label for like my first eight mm. album maybe even nine first nine albums and then it was you know if you do anything nine times i'd like to think that you can do it by yourself so there was no love lost there it was just like it was everything was in place mm. you know it's like, um, I'm just going to, you know, do the next one by myself. And it was all like, yeah, good luck, high five. So there's certainly no, certainly no love lost. But since then, you know, made it very 
you know, cottage industry, basically. Like when we, if you was to buy something from my website, my mum and dad send it out. Yeah. Right? So I've got them, got them on board. Um, and then, you know, we do, when we release an album, like, you know, my wife does a lot. Of, she does the website and sets up all the store and stuff like that on there. And then when we release an album or, you know, like the merch we're selling over lockdown, we just do it all here and fire it out. We've got good systems in place, but it's, me and my family it is, yeah, it's probably the, uh, that's such a good thing. And like, I don't, like, obviously I'm pretty new to this game. Do you, even from your perspective, is that a unique thing within, you know, the music industry and what you've seen? Is that a unique thing or like a um, rare thing? I, I mean, no, not really. I think a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of artists will, will sort out their own merch up to a point. Um, I mean, you know, most of the merch we do is sort of sign and then it's just like, you know, and it's just, you know, I've not, never been afraid of work. It's one of the works in factories for a long time. So there's something about packaging and sending out merch. I was almost kind of trained, trained for it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, no, I don't think it's, it's, it's DIY, isn't it? Mm. You know, the old form, you know, who else is going to do it? Do it yourself. I mean, we definitely do it, you know, like, we got our shit together. It's not like, you know, a bunch of sort of kids sniffing yeah. glue, you know, <laughs> sort of CDs or anything like that. But uh, it just, you know, it, and that's, it just, you know, it gives, I mean, it's, it's not like there's people knocking trying to do it either. You know, not that I'd have them, but it's not like people are like, you're like oh my God, we've got great plans. It's just, um, it, it, it just happened that way. And, you know, and it's just the way that it means that I can just keep on doing it. It's just more financially viable to mm. do it. You know, it's like we have to do it. So we pay someone else to do it. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's such, that is the thing. Obviously it's like the cost and stuff, but I remember even from the first EP I released recently or two years ago, and it was a, me and my girlfriend with like the stack of copies and like I was signing them, she was folding them and then we were posting them. And with like a new album and stuff, there's something really like humbling and like with like i've just had an album launch and i was getting all these orders ready i had to take a minute to try and like recompose myself because i was like holy fuck i get to do this and obviously with you getting to share with your family that must just be such a great moment to share in as, as well as music <laughs> I mean, and stuff. we're all fucking stressed <laughs> i'm trying to remember that i'll try and remember that when i'm like moaning about like where the fuck we're all gonna go out late and well, well it's like it's a bit more, uh, it's, it's a bit more, I mean, we, it, it is nice, of course it is, but yeah, I mean, we have, uh, it can be pretty stressful. I mean, my wife deserves a lot more credit than, than she's getting as well. She's like almost devised secret ways of, uh, she found a way of like secretly sneaking into the, the sort of uh, the bloodstream of Royal Mail without ever going into a post office. We drive, I don't want to give away too many secrets to who's listening. We drive into a certain like delivery center as if we're Royal Mail staff members. And she's got worked out a way of tagging up all the bags and stuff. So we just kind of like throw them out into like the <laughs> middle of the postal service and then just get out of there. And they always, they arrive so quickly. It's like, and, it, and I don't know how Lizzie created it, but uh, it's kind of terrifying. But um, yeah, well, like I said, we have our we have our systems in place, and it's just from uh, just from doing it. Yeah, from years of experience. Yeah, 
that's such like you're one of the people i've been really interested in talking to because it has been such a diy ethos to it but it's never been you know you talked about this in a previous podcast but you've never not that you haven't wanted to climb or play the massive shows but you've never wanted to exceed or like reach beyond like what you can actually have and i think that plays to like a real strength of musicians and to yourself to show the longevity of your career and things yeah i'd rather you know i'd certainly rather do it for a long time than you know for a short time and have more definitely mm. and i feel, i also think there's kind of like an unsung song about it's something about being a musician or a performer where everybody around you presumes that you you've got the next show has to be bigger you know like the mm. next album has to sell more there's no one kind of really selling the idea of being a musician and a songwriter for your whole life and, you know, making as much money as you would if you, you know, managed a bar, mm. you know, but you just get to do it forever. And it comes with all these other perks like travel and, you know, I mean, the perks of being a musician and a songwriter are endless, you know, from the people that you meet to the places that you go to, the, the, the wild and wacky things that lay themselves in, in front of you. It's like the the idea of just kind of like getting something right and letting it sort of plateau. I mean, again, it, it's, you know, the whole world is is driven towards this thing where things have to be bigger, better, faster, stronger, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, I've never really felt that. Mm. And you know, I've always felt really, certainly in music, I've always felt really happy in my lot, basically. Mm. And, you know, and I'll, work, I'll definitely work harder uh, to, you know, just to, just to make sure it keeps happening. I mean, now I'm in a position where if, you know, if people weren't buying my records or coming to my shows, I don't know what I would do. You know, it'd be, you know, I can't even bear thinking about it. Uh, you know, so it's a case of, you know, I don't need the next show to be bigger than the last. I just don't need smaller yeah no that's i think what you just said there is something that like you've just said it's not necessary not even not advertised as a thing but it's like to be able to be content and to make a living as a musician especially in this day and age is something that could possibly be attainable for a lot of people if not not if they lowered their standards but they set their goals to a sustainable level yeah I agree. Mm. But, you know, we're wrapping up this podcast and I can't thank you enough, but you recently did, was it, have you started doing some socially distanced gigs? Was it a festival? I saw a festival. I've done a bunch. I've done, I've done a, I've done a bunch. Um, I, in the last, in the last three weeks, I've played in like a, 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 a sort of beer garden or a sort of courtyard in a, in an outside a venue in Bristol mm. uh, called the Forum, which is a, a, a sort of venue I've been playing for years. I have a sheep farm in Biddeford in Devon, a campsite in Sussex. Um, all of them, the, the kind of the, the day that the law meant you could do gig, you could um, be with six people outside that people like promoters and people around the country kind of got their heads going and created ways to do it. So the sheep farm, for example, had circles mowed in the ground that you could put six people in and it was 60 quid for a circle. So you come to, you know, and you went down and you stood in your circle and 
you went to the bar and bish bash bosh and you know and that was one the other one was the same thing six people on a park bench in uh, in in bristol two shows like one in the afternoon one one in the evening so it kind of worked out with you know getting more people around and doing enough tickets to make it work for everybody and stuff like that and then uh campsite which i've done a few these sort of campsite gigs where they're running at like 10 15 capacity mm. lots of space loads of cleaning aspects more sort of camping but then people can sort of mini congregate on park benches and whatnot play some songs to them i think um and there was like that the the minute that the laws were relaxed and people started inventing these things of like the bookings came in for me quite quickly because i think ultimately people were trying to do something outside where they could sell booze and play music and people would sit down mm. and that's quite but it fits me you know like drinking music that you can sit down to it's like so within that niche it was like i got quite a lot to be honest i was like fuck game on i thought it was going to be bookings every weekend until you know until the winter came but it was more like a lot of people just acted really fast i haven't got as it stands i haven't got anything else mm. booked in diary i've got tours on standby waiting to see what happens but um but yeah, you know, I've, I have been out. And I have to say, the more I've been out and the more I've been with strangers and in scenarios that I don't know, seeing people react, the more um, hopeful and sort of positive I feel that the way out of the, this pandemic is going to be um, fast. Fuck it. Mm. You know? I'm probably naive. You know, I've been naive for the whole thing. I've been pretty... You know, always thinking like, Glastonbury will go ahead, Boomtown will go ahead and that. And now I'm like, everything's going to be fine. But still, you know, like seeing human beings out there and actually just being out and and, and seeing people just release, you know, from the lockdown and, mm. and whatnot has, has made me, it's given me a, a great, you know, feeling of hope. Oh, that's, that's amazing to hear. And obviously you've got tours plan for like it seems like everyone's just kind of like on the starting blocks of a race just you know rocking to like denied a lot of our you know natural human instincts and when we can gather them back we will and then you know we'll fucking love it Mm. and do you have anything i know you've done a book and things is there anything on the horizon in that aspect or is there any new music that you're going to be working on and releasing yeah i mean yeah i've got two so i've got two out normally i release an album every december but i'm releasing two albums this year so i've got the one album just about the pandemic five songs which have been out and five which have which are unheard that are all written and recorded just at home here. Mm. and then i've got another album which is got nothing to do with the pandemic um that would have come out anyway um, and again, because we were saying about, you know, short shelf life and whatnot, I want I think it's interesting to have um, a, a, a sort of capsule about how I felt about the pandemic. Mm. But at the same time, I don't want that just to be the, you know, like the, the album. Mm. So the other album, which I was always planning to sort of write and release, it will come out on my 40th birthday. And it's a more of a kind of, a sort of whimsical autobiographical album, like looking back, there's a song about my teacher from school, a song about like being 10 years old at a village disco and, uh, and songs about, you know, my twenties in Camden and stuff like that. So I sort of, yeah, looking back mm. and quite a personal record as well. So they'll both come out 
side by side. Was that autobiographical one? Was that harder to write or was that something that was a cathartic experience for you? Like, yeah, I, was, I actually wrote it. I, I wrote it um, before all this shit was going down. I thought I, was, I did think I was going to expand on it, but I wrote it really quickly. I always find that I've generally finished my records about now. That's mm. initially that's a you know send the, these records into mixing and mastering and stuff. But they are, um, always find that fin- finishing a record, the bit between finishing a record and releasing one is generally when I write a lot. Mm. Because it's the kind of limbo where it's, you're not supposed to write then. <laughs> you're supposed <laughs> to be thinking about the new record. So I actually, and uh, I, I wrote most of the, the non-pandemic album and was ex- in, intending to expand on that. I think it's going to be nine or 10 tracks, but I probably would have been more like 15. But then mm. when the pandemic hit, I didn't really feel like musically going down this sort of like, it just felt pointless to write songs about me being a teenager or whatever it was like fuck that so i was sort of more concentrated on the sort of matters at hand um so generally just and i think it's just good to separate them and there'll be musically one of them's you know like full band big production you know a record and the other's just me whinging about 2020 (laughs) well i can't wait to hear both i'm gonna let you go because you know we've hit the hour mark now and you know i can't thank you enough for your time like yeah said, i'm a lovely huge fan of name i'm yeah. glad we didn't just talk about the pandemic as well i thought that was what it's going to be so talk about oh, songwriting away yeah well thank you so much hopefully uh, i'll get to catch you if you're ever uh, in liverpool again we'll get to sit down and do part two of this but thanks so much jay let's do it and there you have it folks that's episode 14 of into the van into the bag i wonder how many of you guys actually listen to this end part after the podcast and the interesting bits gone but if you've stuck around i really appreciate that and yeah go listen to rogue radio go listen to the next life go listen to fucking beans on toast he's such a fucking brilliant artist i'm such a fan of his and the music he creates is such like i say in this podcast he's one of the few folk singers or country singers or even musicians who truly i think embodies what a modern folk singer is by singing about what's happening around them as it happens I think very few people do it as well as Beans. So go listen to his music. Go back and listen to the episodes of Into the Van. Go listen to other podcasts that Beans has been on. Um, yeah, just keep supporting live music and podcasting and music and creative people. And, you know, just have fun with it as well, guys, for fuck's sake. If there's anything you need to be doing, it's to have fun. So until next time, take care.